Amen. Thank you, worship team. Rejoice, Gateway. Emmanuel has come. Amen. That's what we're celebrating during the season of Advent and the incarnation of God coming to us. Just amazing to even think about. Well, it's always a privilege uh, to be able to encourage you guys in the Word. And as they prayed, uh, Grady's in Orlando with his family. They've just had to have to spend a little time away on vacation with his parents, and they try to do this close to the Christmas season. And so just keep praying for them, and they'll be back on Tuesday. So, But we're going to continue to journey through John. So if you open your Bibles to John chapter 13, and as you're going there, I'm going to give a little review um, from last week because we're just going to have a continuation of the exact same dialogue in the same uh, moment and setting of what Grady was able to share with us last week. And uh, one thing I want you to kind of think about as we go through this next passage, and Grady always bring this up, is, you know, even in this midst of a setting and dialogue and just, you know, conversations and stuff, just allow the Holy Spirit just to get a glimpse of the glory of God even in a conversation. And not just what Jesus says, but I want you to even look a little bit deeper into this conversation and this setting, how this proceeds, of what Jesus did not say or something that maybe Jesus didn't do. Like sometimes one of the greatest things we can see throughout Scripture, God reveals his glory and his amazing nature and character sometimes in what he does not do. Amen? Not in just his actions, but the lack of an action, of holding back, of not doing certain things. So I hope that you can see that even this morning. When John chapter 13, 1 through 20, um, last week, just to give you a little synopsis, they're in the upper room. John chapter 13 through 17 is the account of where Jesus is in the upper room with the uh, apostles during the Lord's Supper. And it lasts for five chapters, John 13 through 17. It's the most intimate time that Jesus has with his disciples out of his entire three years of ministry. So it's a very, very significant time, just a few hours that they get to spend together. It's Maundy Thursday. It's Thursday night, the night before he is crucified. So it's very significant, everything that's said, everything that takes place in God's sovereign providential plan. And that's what I want you to look at today. We're going to have, see one of the greatest commands and truths that he puts forth. But to even see how Jesus interacts and things he does is so special and unique according to God's sovereign plan. So last week, uh, Grady talked about that it was a time of Passover where they're intimately acquainted with each other. They're in the upper room spending a meal together. Jesus knew his hour had come to depart. Jesus then did one of the most unusual things that they would ever expect. Jesus expressed to them a servant's heart and showed them by washing the disciples' feet. One of the most, you know, as far as the culture and the times, as Grady got into last week, they were dumbfounded that Jesus would have gotten on his hands and knees to wash the disciples' nasty feet. And then in the midst of that, he expressed, not all of you are clean that are here. So he put that little nugget out there in the midst of the beginning of this conversation. And then he told them to follow his example and wash one another's feet as he did. Grady's main idea last week was in his love for us, Jesus not only saves us, he also changes us. Say that again. That's what Grady was honing in on. In his love for us, Jesus not only saves us, but he also changes us. So I'm going to take that and I'm going to take it a little further. I'm going to give you a little part two to that main idea. So the main idea I want to give you guys for today is on the screen. The love of Jesus changes us so that we can love one another to the end. And show the world the glory of God. The love of Jesus changes us so that there's a purpose. So we can love one another to the end and show the world the glory of God. 
So if you'd please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to continue on in our journey in John chapter 13, starting in verse 21 through 38. I'm reading from the New American Standard, just so you know. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan had entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. No one knows, no one Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that even this week, as I was studying and reading your word and reading this passage hundreds of times, God, I got a new glimpse of your amazing glory just a fresh glimpse of your power and your nature and your love and your grace. And I pray that for all of us this morning, that your Holy Spirit, as we've even sung and prayed, that you would come and teach us, enlighten us, make this word come alive to us this morning, convict us, challenge us. We just pray that your word would pierce us to the quick, Lord, that we will see you rightly and understand who you are and get a glimpse of your beauty in this passage. Come and have your way among us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's look here at verse 21, just this little beginning section, and let's just see what God was up to and just God's amazing ways through this conversation up here in the upper room. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, So Simon Peter gestured him and said to him, Tell us whom it is of whom he is speaking. So he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it, uh, took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. So at this moment, when it said, When Jesus had said this, Just prior to that, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, 
and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And Jesus was already confronting them because the disciples, even after seeing Jesus wash his feet, remember what happened? They got into an argument about who's the greatest among them, which is typical among men, you know, and just how the flesh can get into this situation. But that's where they were. They weren't even thinking about the act itself and then just trying to compare with each other. And so Jesus' mindset was on all of this. And Jesus even mentioned, as I said, that he said, someone among you is not clean. So this was the you know, the perspective of where they were, what the apostles were hearing and what Jesus was saying. And that's why it's interesting to see here that when Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. The Greek word there, troubled, literally means he was stirred up. He was unsettled. There was an emotional turn at this point. And remember, everything Jesus did was without sin, correct? So he had, an, he had this unsettling in his spirit, but he was not sinful. He wasn't anxious or fearful. But there was an emotion. In John 12, 27, he had the same moment, the same Greek word was used there, where Jesus cried out, Now my soul is troubled. Father, save me, for my hour has not yet come. So he's experienced this type of emotion before. And so Jesus at this moment declared this amazing statement. Truly, truly, I say to you in this emotional state that one of you will betray me. I've read this for years, and it just finally hit me at one point. Why didn't Jesus call out Judas? He could have done that, right? He could have said, truly, truly, I say to you, Judas is going to betray me tonight. But he didn't. I want you to just think about that one. Why didn't he? Because he very clearly could have. And then at that moment, as the disciples began looking at one another, you can only imagine that moment, them sitting around there with this huge statement being made, this bomb being dropped. One of the translations says, as they were looking at each other, they were all deeply grieved. And every single one of them around the table started going, surely not I, Lord, surely not I, Lord. Kind of looking at each other and almost taken aback like, could I do this? Because remember, these guys don't know when they heard that someone's going to betray me, they don't know when this is going to happen. They had no idea what was coming. They could have thought, am I going to, someone's going to betray you in a week, in a few days, tomorrow? So all of them are looking at themselves going, could I do this? Surely not. I could do this, God. So I just want you to put yourself there because this helps us see what God is doing and why it's so significant of what these men had to be feeling at this moment. So then he goes on to say, as they're all kind of discombobulated and feeling this deep grief, asking, Lord, surely not I. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And I loved how John always... That was John. John communicated his position in a lot of the text here as being the one that, whom Jesus loved. And so the John who wrote this letter is referring to himself. And this is significant as well, you guys. It talks about them reclining on Jesus' bosom. I know we've all seen Da Vinci, or is it, yeah, you know, the picture of the Last Supper, and they're all sitting there. Well, that's not the case, and many of you know the truth about this. But culturally, they would all be sitting down on the floor with pillows, and they would be in a horseshoe shape. Okay, so just picture a horseshoe up here. And the host would be in the middle. I thought about getting on the floor, but I'm not going to. So, but Jesus would be here in the middle. And he would be sitting in a position. But there was two places of honor at a, at, a, at a table during this culture and during this time. One was on the right and one was on the left. And the way they would sit is they would put all their weight on their left arm and they would lounge. So they would have their legs out kind of at an angle, but they're laying down in a sense, kind of in a little half-shaped position. So they would use their right hand to eat, to dip, and do whatever they had to do. 
So you can only picture Jesus sitting here. And John, literally, you guys, what this means literally is he's leaning into Jesus' chest. He's physically touching him. They were that intimate, that close as a friend. So he's leaning back into Jesus' bosom. And so what's interesting here is that it says, Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. So this implies that Peter is what? He's not very close. So it's almost like Peter going, hey, John, ask him, you know, who is this guy? And that's really what it was. Peter was on the, the little fringes here. He was not close up, up front with Jesus, or he would not gesture to the one close to him to ask the question. And so that's what took place here, that Jesus was talking to John, and John was the one that leaned back, as it says here, to his bosom, and asked, Lord, who is it? And he said, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel. And this is significant too, guys. Every theologian I read, all the commentaries I read, 90% of them are all in agreement culturally and from what we know of this passage, that the place of honor to the left was given to Judas. I mean, just hear that. The place of honor, the one who Jesus knew would betray him, had the place of honor. And the reason they said it, because of the conversation and being close. So if John's here and Judas is on the other side, then Jesus is leaning in closer to whom? Judas. He would be a little more closer on this end. And that is why, again, we're going to hear this conversation in a moment, why when he dipped the morsel would be someone who was close. And this act of a morsel dip, of taking a bread or a piece of meat and dipping, is another act of honor, where the host would literally take from his own plate and give to someone else is an act of friendship, an act of honor, an act of special favor. And so that's the situation we had here in the beginning. And so John leaned back and Jesus made that statement as to whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he did. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Another passage talks about Judas responded in Matthew 26. At that moment, you can only imagine looking at Jesus and even Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. And a lot of people, I mean, they're speculating, like, why would he make the statement? Was there a place there of doubt? For even in himself, that could I really do this? Because here's the thing. Judas had already been with the, the chief scribes and Pharisees. He had already set something up. So Judas may, whatever this cry was, may have been doubt, may have concern, or may have just been, I don't want to get caught. You know, cook, you know, your hand in the cookie jar. But as soon as he said, surely it is not I, Rabbi, in, another, in the Matthew 26, Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Like, you have declared it so. And then, here, I, what I think is so significant, I think, because of the other ch- Matthew, that where he may have said, surely it is not I, Rabbi, if there was a hinge of doubt, what happened next? Who entered him? Satan. And guys, this is so significant. Some people missed this over the years of just even reading this. As far as all I can tell the scripture is only two people that Satan will ever possess in the context of what we've seen in Scripture. He's doing his work now, but as far as Scripture is concerned, it was Judas and eventually the Antichrist. But here it's so significant because in Luke chapter 22, it literally says Satan then entered Judas before he went to the scribes and Pharisees. So Satan's like, this is my, this is my mission. I'm taking care of this one myself. He could have sent a demon, correct? Any other principality and power or form of darkness, evil spirit could handle this. We see it all throughout Scripture. But when did this mission start for Satan? Genesis chapter 3, 
verse 15. And I want you all to see the significance of that. Satan, from that point, when God expressed way back in Genesis that there's going to come a seed that's going to have enmity between you and man. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to what? He's going to crush and bruise your head. And from Genesis 3 to this point, Satan's like, this is mine. I'm making sure this gets done. To crush this seed of who's coming so that I cannot be destroyed. So Satan entered Judas once, and this was the second time. And I think it had to take this moment for it to be fulfilled, for what Scripture and what God's sovereign plan was all about. And then again, as it says here, Jesus gave it to Judas. And look at the response of the apostles. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Verse 8. For some were supposing, because Jesus has the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast, or else that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. I think it's so interesting that Jesus did this discreetly. Because, again, what could he have done? Hey, John, John, watch what I'm doing. You know, and he could have made this very obvious. Could he not? Again, why did Jesus keep this discreet? Why did he not just say, guys, here he is? Because what do we know about the other 11? Their personalities, their behavior, their character. What did Peter do the very next night when he was in the garden and the guys were going to come up and take Jesus? Bye-bye ear. He took out a sword and cut off a servant's ear. I mean, I think this is so, I mean, God, this is so significant to me about God's plans, his sovereignty, his love, his grace, his goodness, his overall determination that he has a plan for this. Because if he were to call Judas out, what do you think would have happened to that dude? You think those other 11 would allow that man to leave that room? Seriously. I'm just saying, God is sovereignty could have called angels down to separate them out, you know. But think about this. God had a plan, and it was going to go according to Scripture and prophecy, and Judas had to be the one to leave that room to fulfill it. That, to me, is significant, even seeing God's nature and his ways and what he didn't do or what he didn't say. And so God revealed his grace, his love, his compassion and care by even keeping that discreet and sadly honoring his enemy. Isn't that amazing? Honoring his enemy. And whose feet did Jesus even wash? his a lot of times we forget that can you imagine the king of the universe the creator of the universe bowing before his betrayer and looking in his eyes and washing his nasty feet in an act of humility again just think about that for us guys so powerful so he said to him judas what you do do quickly and leave and so after verse 8 they were all perplexed and again that's even the holy spirit he did not give them eyes to see during this situation he did not give them the glimpse of the true reality of what was going on. And even when John declared here, I love it in verse 30, at the end, just to give context, he said, you know, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. He bare witness to the fact that it did become dark, but most theologians all, based on the context of the phrasing, it's to give an example of the atmosphere of that night. That it was dark, that evil was doing its part to try to destroy the savior of the world, and Satan was at work. So now we look to verse 31, and it's amazing this transition. Look how this happens with the Lord. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Isn't it interesting, the transition time? When he had gone out, it's like the Lord had to wait for just the family to be in the room. The Lord had to wait before he was going to divulge and express his heart and to give a charge, and everything that was about to come, he had to wait for the traitor to be gone, for this to take place, and he waited. And where did God start with his commission? The glory of God, amen? He started right with God's glory. The Son of Man is now glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. And he's obviously expressing, expressing his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension, what's to come, the hour now has finally come for the purpose of God to be fulfilled. And look at the transition with our Lord in verse 33. After that declaration, it takes a different tone. Little children. It's the only time Jesus in this context used this in this way. It's literally the tone is a teacher to a student, literally my dear children, expression of affection. It's the only time in the gospel like this. And he just took a whole different tone on his love and care for these guys as his children. And look at what he drops on them. Where I am going, you cannot come. Can you imagine again at that moment? They just heard someone in this room is going to betray you. They're not sure if it was Judas or not. Think about that. They are not sure. Still sitting in that room, enjoying the presence of their Savior, their Lord, their King. Judas has left. They're still obviously having to look around going, is it one of us? And then he says, I'm going to be leaving you guys. Where I can come, you can't follow me. And again, just think about the mindset of these guys. And then out of that posture, after that huge bomb drop, look at what he declares in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Coming out of that mindset and that flow, he drops on them one of the greatest commandments for all of us, for the history of mankind of what he just expressed here. The Greek word for new there literally means an unprecedented commandment given for the first time, brand new. And the disciples knew when they heard commandment, do you think they reverted back maybe for a moment of what Jesus declared in Mark 12? They know, hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. What's the first and great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They knew those two commandments. And then Jesus just took it to another level, saying, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. Changes everything. So what was Jesus communicating here? As I read that, I thought about what Jesus, uh, John was saying back in John 13, verse 1. He said, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, here's the phrase, he loved them to the end. That's why I put that in the main idea. Jesus himself loved his own, and he loved them to the end. So what does that mean for us? The end there literally means the fullest extent to completion, to perfection. God loved them to the very end, to the point of his death. So 
So how did he love his apostles? What would they have experienced? And now, thank God, us on this side of the gospel, on this side of the cross, we can look back and see for years. Think about this. When he made that statement, the apostles experienced his affection, his compassion, his provision, his protection, his guidance, his wisdom, humility, his servanthood. And it was just shown them the greatest act of humility up to that point. They just saw his servant heart, his humility of them washing his na- their nasty feet. So he just exemplified that, including washing Judas' feet. But unbeknownst to them, one day later, they were going to get to see the greatest expression of his love that hasn't even been shown yet or seen yet. And the greatest example of that for us to see is Romans 5.8. Let me put it up there. I love We've all got it, man. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate act of love, the ultimate act of his grace and mercy and all that his nature ensues. There's a couple guys I just got to read. The uh, Theologian voice. Um, really good stuff here I wanted to express. He said regarding this, It is evident that since the Lord Jesus Christ was about to depart from the world, the only true example of his love that the world had ever known was about to be gone, to be taken from it. Jesus was himself love, for he was God and God is love. He was about to prove that love by dying on the cross. Yet in the very act of dying, which was to be followed by his resurrection and ascension into heaven, he was to be taken from humanity. So how then were men and women to know what true divine love is? How were they to see love demonstrated when he was about to be taken from them? The answer is that they were to see it in those who are Christ's followers. Jesus is being taken, but now the disciples are to love as he loved. It is as if Jesus was saying, I am going, therefore you must be as I have been in this world. Do you think that was easy for the apostles to even hear that? It would be the same for us. There's no doubt that these disciples loved Jesus. But it is true, of course, that their love was not as strong as they thought it was. Peter would not die for him. In fact, he actually denied him three times. The others would scatter at the moment of his arrest in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, they did truly love him. And yet, just, I love this, and yet, just as certainly as they loved him, so is it certain that they did not really love one another with anything even approaching that intensity. On the contrary, they were actually jealous of one another, disputing over themselves. They would not wash one another's feet. In this situation, Jesus, who is about to be taken from them, points out that now it is precisely one another whom they must love. The vertical love of disciples for the exalted Christ must be expressed horizontally in their love for all of the Christians. Moreover, the horizontal love which can be seen by everyone is proof of the vertical. And guys, that's for us. Think about that. But as we look across this room, the love we have for one another and how we share with one another and express this love to one another is proof that we are even His. And it doesn't start with us loving the world. Isn't that amazing? It starts with us loving each other, fellow sheep in the flock, which is very difficult sometimes. Morris, another great... Theologian guy put this, a new commandment is an emphatic position. Jesus is not speaking here of the love to all people, not to all people, but of love within the community of believers. It is presented as the marching orders for the newly gathering messianic community. The new thing appears to be the mutual affection 
that Christians have for one another on account of Christ's great love for them. The reason Jesus said this was a new commandment is because it was new that the love of Christ's friends for Christ's sake was a new thing in the world. Jesus himself has set the example. He calls on them to follow in his steps. This is to be the distinguishing mark of Christ's followers. And so we just practically, Boyce brought this up, and this is really very humbling to even think about. But he says, uh, how can we think about this practically, this loving one another as we should? And so why don't we go to the place that describes love the best? And that's 1 Corinthians 13, right? He said, uh, when you quote this, because it's about love, then Jesus can very easily be substituted in there, amen? Because Jesus is love. So Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He's not proud. He's not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered or keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Now, we just read that, right? It's encouraging. Yes. But what did God just tell us to do? To love one another is what? Jesus loves us. So whose name can we put in here? Okay, I'll put mine in first. But isn't this what this says? This is what Jesus commands of us? That if we're to love each other as he has loved us, and love is all these things, and he is love, then we could read this. CJ is patient. CJ is kind. CJ does not envy. CJ does not post. CJ, okay, I'm going to stop there. But that's the beauty of this. We should be able... It's, it's biblical to put our name there, right? It is. But once we start reading that, CJ's not proud, CJ's always trust... What? I know me. <laughs> and I know I don't love that way all the time. But by God's grace and power and mercy and sovereignty, can we? Absolutely. And we should expect to. We should walk out of here knowing this is what is expected of to live by, to walk in this love. And walk out of here confident in the Spirit man in us, saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can put my name in every one of these and know it's of God. And know I can do this without feeling guilt or condemnation. Because I do know I can't do it on my own. There's no way. I have to have the work of the Holy Spirit in me to even remotely get through just the first one. That's patience. But I want you guys to see this is what we've been charged with. Putting our names in 1 Corinthians 13 after this charge from Christ is exactly what is expected of us. And the beauty of it is that phrase, by this, by this love, by you acting this way, all men, and all in the Greek means all, so all the world, every human on earth, he's telling his disciples, from this point on, where you walk, where you go, as the world sees you 11 and the rest of my followers, they're going to know I'm real, know I exist, know my kingdom is right because of how you treat each other. Guys, we've got to take this to heart. This is a serious charge to us. And sometimes we just bypass it as like, oh, I know we love one another, we you know, treat each other good. This is proving our go- the gospel is real to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and his power is real because of how we treat one another in this way. And so it's just, again, challenging to go back and look at that. What is expected of us through his love and grace? This sacrificial love. 
to wash each other's feet, to walk in humility, and it starts with the one right next to you in this room. Isn't that an encouraging thing, though, too? Because here's the beauty of it. As we do it with each other, faithfully, rightly, understanding this, where is it going to eventually ooze out into? The world. That's the point. As we do it with each other, it then maybe ooze is not the best because it doesn't flow very well. But <laughs> it will flow out as rivers of living water. Yes, we'll do it that way. But it should. Y'all say, as we do this with each other, as we love each other sacrificially, as we serve one another, as we wash each other's feet, as we stand in the gap with each other, as we do all these things Jesus said, his affection, his compassion, his provision, his protection, his guidance, all these things we are to do with each other. And as we do that, the world is going to take notice that Jesus is Lord. And that's what he was trying to get at them here. And in closing, but look at this again, as human as we are. This is just amazing to think. Jesus brings this amazing charge on these men. And look how Peter responds. Verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Isn't that amazing? But it's so us. We would all done the same thing. Y'all seen the movies? You know, you see the scenes where somebody's talking and the person just, you know, and it's just, they're focused on one thing. They heard the last words dangling in the air. And all Peter heard was, someone in this room is going to betray me and I'm leaving town and you can't come. That's all Peter's hearing. I mean, Jesus brought one of the greatest commandments to us in the history of the eternity. And all Peter heard was, you're leaving us? Why can't I come? But I love that because it shows our humanity. It shows the man he was. And the reason I'm going to bring up how significant it is, they never bring up this commandment again. Never. In the next five chapters, when Jesus continues the dialogue, and what I love about it is, because primarily, I know this was for the apostles, but why was this in here? For you and for me. They don't discuss it again. Isn't that incredible? It is not brought up. He continues on on all these amazing things. But Peter's just concerned about, Lord, where are you going to go? And you can only imagine the heart of these guys. Our source of life, our hope, our king, our God, everything you are. We've walked with you for years, intimately, all these things, and you're going to leave us. That's what his mindset was. How are we going to get by? But guess what? In that heart, that mindset they're all experiencing, one chapter later, they're going to hear how they can get by. Because one's coming. One's on the way. Someone God's going to send to empower them, to fill them, to anoint them, to allow them to understand verse 34 and 35. They didn't know it yet. That's the beauty of this. The Holy Spirit has his little, you know, coming out party next chapter. But I just want us to see here, guys, just the beauty of the context of all of this, that God is in control He's so sovereign. This is so important of what God has called us to. I'm going to close with this one scripture, 1 John chapter 3. Same John, same guy that wrote this. And I just want you to see and just receive the seriousness of this, of what we've been called to. John wrote this letter many years later, but just hear the heart of Jesus and what God is trying to communicate to the churches here that John is writing to and to us. That's 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. By this, there it is, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. You see the distinction? There's no third party. 
Children of God, child of the devil. No in-between. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not what? Ooh, love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John remembered. Remember, he was there. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, gateway, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we have loved the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I'm going to say it again. He laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And even outside of my scripture there, I wrote, to the end. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And look at John's heart, just as Jesus said. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And that deed is laying our lives down. The world seeing us, guys, love each other rightly demands a response from the world. That's why they're going to hate us. So if we love properly, if we love rightly, it's going to cause the world, people, our friends, people to go, wait a minute, what, what is this about? Why are you doing this? Why do you live your life this way? It's going to demand them to, to respond either to understand that it's from a loving relationship with a God who created them and died for them, or they're going to reject it through, as it says here, don't be surprised when the world hates us. But isn't it amazing to think just how we treat one another and love one another and sacrifice for one another, the gospel's on display and the world will know that Jesus is Lord. It's incredible. So as you stand, let me just pray together. Just encourage you during this season, we have a great opportunity, say it's every Christmas season, and Easter and other ones that just God provides an opportunity where the world gets a glimpse into our faith through circumstances and events like this. So I just want to you know, challenge you and encourage you. You may say, just as thought as Peter them, I never think about loving each other, one another. I never think about the, the impact of how I treat my fellow brother or Christian or family member, whatever, the true impact of what that has on the gospel and people in the world. And obviously, as we've just seen, it's a command of the Lord and that we can ask God by his grace and through the power of the Spirit, he can help us to do that. That not only God changes us, he changes us so that we can love one another to the end so that the world will see the glory of God. And that's the point. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, thank you for their truth. God, thank you for that command that you so graciously put in there. And for us, for us being on this side of the cross, this side of redemption, this side of your ascension, your glorious rule and reign that we get to see and experience on a daily basis. And Lord, as we, even as we saw Peter, didn't even respond to the command. He was so engulfed with the things of his own mind and sorrow and the flesh and concerns. He didn't even acknowledge it. But God, I pray that we, who have ears to hear and eyes to see and 
We do have understanding. We do see it. God, help us. We need you, Lord, to love each other rightly, to take that command seriously and see the significance and the impact it has for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. That during this season, Lord, we'll love each other sacrificially and give of ourselves and allow your Holy Spirit to move in and through us so that when we do encounter the world, they will see that you are Lord, that you are good and gracious and merciful and righteous and that you came to set men free. So we ask that today. So whatever business you need to do with the Lord, pray in your seat, come down. Maybe you haven't loved that way, seen that way. If you're in this room and you've never experienced that amazing love of God, that you have not experienced saving faith, please come down and ask me. I'd love to introduce you to our amazing God. Just praise you, Lord, and thank you as we worship you.